I remember weighing in and I was I was 268. And so I was like, man, I can't weigh in at 268. I mean, they're just gonna go, they're gonna go ballistic. So I weighed in, I got a 10 pound weight and uh, I, you know, put it put it in my pants, in my shorts. So it was just in my jock strap, you know, like a little 10 pound plate and weighed in. So it was 278. And I was like, yeah, I haven't gained all my weight back, but I'm on my way back, you know? And I was like, oh gosh. Hey, this is Mark Schler, 12-year NFL veteran, three-time Super Bowl champion, 20-year broadcaster and entrepreneur, and I'm on The Game Plan. Our next guest, simply put, is a modern renaissance man. You have seen him on ESPN. You've seen him in soap operas. He was even in a remake of Red Dawn. He is an entrepreneur. He's a football analyst. And to give Tim and I some run for our money, he's even got his own podcast. Coming to us live from Colorado is three-time Super Bowl champion, two-time pro bowler, undisputedly the greatest NFL player from Alaska, Mark Schlereth. Thank you so much for joining us on The Game Plan. No, it's a pleasure to be with you guys, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks yeah, for coming it's, on. It's, it's exciting to have you on. Well, I think a great place to start, you know, this episode is going to come out right around the NFL draft. So we were looking back at your own draft day. Inter- uh-huh. Interesting fact is you were drafted in a round that no longer exists, the 10th round. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you yeah. have any particular moments from that draft day, getting drafted by Washington, that you could share with us? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. Obviously, you know, you have to look back on your career in general and kind of what you're willing to sacrifice to be successful. And what a lot of people don't know is I was actually retired from football as a junior in college because of my injury history. So I was done with football. I had no opportunities. The the university basically said, you've been too injured. We don't want you here anymore. We don't want you to participate. You can go into coaching or do whatever. At that time, I think I had my seventh surgery while I was a member of the University of Idaho. So that was it for them. They said that was enough. And, you know, when you're 22 years old or whatever I was at the time, you tend to heal a lot quicker than you do at uh, 32 and 42 and 52 and all those things. So as I started to heal, I started to feel like, man, I just want to play one more year. I want to play my senior year. You guys kind of owe this to me. And ultimately, you know, I kind of begged and whined and, and pleaded my way back onto the football team. I actually signed waivers to limit the university's liability towards me as an injury risk so I could come back my senior year. Now I was with a, I was at an event with coach Keith Gilbertson, who was my head coach at the time. He tells a little different story. He says, I threw him up against his wall in his office and threatened (laughs) to kill him. I don't know that that really happened. I think he's created a little, you know, urban legend there, but we did have, yeah, yeah. But we did have some uh, frank discussions about you guys owe this to me. So anyhow, I came back my senior year, actually switched positions and made it through a healthy year. But it was, you know, my only year that I played essentially offensive guard. So I had played defense up to that point. So I had no agent. I had no I mean, I had literally I had nothing. And so it looked like my football career was over. And, you know, I mean, I was naive enough to believe going to the University of Idaho that I was going to be able to play pro football. Right. And so everything seemed to be over. And I had a teammate by the name of Marvin Washington and went went on to play like 11 years in the league. And uh, one evening, Marvin called me and said, hey, he knew I didn't have an agent. He knew my dream was to play in the NFL. He knew I wasn't invited to the combine. And he called me and said, hey, listen, you know, the Cincinnati Bengals or whoever it was going to come work me out tomorrow morning. They're going to be at the facility at the Kibbe Dome at 7 a.m. Why don't you crash my workout? Okay. And so I ended up showing up to Marvin's workout and just begging scouts to let me work out (laughs) and and just saying, hey, man, I've got tape. You know, I, I moved to the offensive side of the ball. I'm a good football player. You guys just need to give me an opportunity. And so ultimately. Uh, which was really cool. Marvin and I have a great story. We're still very connected today and we're, you know, great friends. So Marvin and I, like he knew this is what I wanted to do. And so he kept inviting me to his workouts. Well, the irony of it is I would blow him away in the workouts. Like I'd run (laughs) faster forties and I'd have a better vertical jump, but he was supposed to be like a second or third round pick because he played one year of college football. He was six foot six, 270 chiseled from granite. He was bigger than anybody we had on our football <laughs> team. So we, we essentially recruited him to play football. He goes on one year of college football to get 14 sacks and he was a hot commodity. And so he started inviting me to his workouts and I would blow him away. I probably cost him three rounds of the draft. Oh you know, he, he ended up getting drafted in the sixth round. He probably would have got drafted in the second or third round, but I crushed him in all these workouts. And yet every night, 
this guy would call me and say, Hey man, the Browns are coming or the Bengals are coming or the jets are coming or the skins are coming, whatever. And I kept crashing his workouts time after time, probably happened 20 different times. And eventually teams started calling me directly and saying, Hey, we want to come work you out again. And Hey, we want to come look at you again. And so, you know, ultimately it's always funny when you hear people talk about self-made men and self-made this, and that's a bunch of baloney. Every one of us has had help somewhere along yeah. the line. I wouldn't have played in the NFL if it wasn't for Marvin Washington and crashing his workout. Yeah, but here's the cool story. The cool part of that is after, Tim, after we crushed your uh, Green Bay Packers in Super Bowl 32 <laughs> and uh, stole part of your soul, <laughs> I was down in the training room and Mike Shanahan was our head coach at the time. And Mike Shanahan comes down. I was in the training room because I spent most of my time. I was actually more of a professional rehabber than football player. So I'm down in the training room kind of hanging out, rehabbing whatever surgery I just had. And uh, Shannon comes down and says, hey, listen, man, we need we need a, a guy that can be a swing player for us on the defensive line, can play D tackle, can play D end. I got a list of about seven guys, but I don't really know him. He goes, you've played forever. You know, everybody tell me which guy not only can play, but more importantly, who fits mm -hmm. the culture of our football team. Right. So I go, well, give me the list. And I look at the list and the and like in the middle of the list, it's the first name my eyes just gravitated toward. It was Marvin Washington. Huh. Wow. And so I didn't even see the other names. I don't even know who else was on that <laughs> list. My eyes just automatically went there. And I said, sign him. He's your guy. And Mike said, thanks. And wow. so we ended up signing Marvin Washington. And then Marvin and I, teammates of the University of Idaho, you know, the road less traveled. We ended up winning Super Bowl 33 together as teammates. Wow, so, that's incredible. you know, you kind of pay, pay it, it forward, forward type yeah, of thing. Forward. Like. He got exactly. me in the NFL and I got him a Super Bowl ring. Well, so it's yeah. it's kind of a cool connection and and you know we joke and laugh about it to this day. I was going to save this question for a little bit but and I didn't even realize the Marvin Washington part another 10-year uh, NFL vet on your team but you also played with Scott Linehan who has had a great career as a coach in the NFL. Yeah. John Freeze was one of your QBs. He went on to have a long career in the league. Coach Dennis Erickson so here you had kind of this group of guys in Idaho. I mean could you couldn't compare it to anything else when you were in school, certainly, but I'm sure you guys have reflected on it since. Hey, look at look at what we did or, you know, have gone on to do. Sure. You know, the thing that was cool about that time is we didn't have necessarily the best athletes on our football team. We just had really good football players and guys that really cared about one another and guys that really were sold out for mm -hmm. the program. And, you know, it's funny, the coaches didn't have to police the program. We did as players. Like if you didn't fit, you didn't work, we'd run yeah, it off. That's pretty like, cool. We, we were just mean. Uh, so, yeah. But that was, that was the way our football team operated. Ultimately, we had guys that cared about one another, you know, guys yeah. that were willing to sacrifice. And that really is to me. I mean, you can sit there and talk all you want about talent and about like the combine thing is, is ridiculous to me. Yeah. Like, I watched the, the combine. It, it's it is unbelievable. The other thing is it definitely separates. Do you, you know where Bill Belichick was on Saturday of the combine? Yeah, he was in the rain working some kid out. Right. Yeah, yeah that's right. It, it, it has become a made for television event. And the thing that just blows me away is we use 40 times yeah, as some indicator <laughs> of if you're a good football player. Like if you run a really fast 40, you know what that makes you? Fast. Yeah. There, there's yeah. Nothing, nothing else. If I bench press 225 a bunch of times, it makes me a good bench presser. That's right. It has nothing to do. You know, if you look at the top 10 40s in combine history, you know, just from the combine alone, there's a bunch of names that you've never heard of. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. You know, John Ross is the fastest ever, man. He can't get on the football field, yeah. right? Yeah. There's one guy, Chris Johnson, who was a Pro Bowl player. The rest of the guys are just guys. Same thing with the guys who do the bench press test for 45 right. times. Yeah. Of all those guys, their careers are like, hey, he played in 26 games. And you've, you know, and you've and said that was this before. Career. You've said this before where you're like, uh, uh, you know, football is not hard for football players, but it's hard for athletes. So, so unpack yeah. that a little bit for me. I mean, is it a certain combination of athleticism and decision-making or what's about that? I, I think one, you have to, obviously the hand of God has got to reach down and touch. You. You've got to be blessed with athleticism. Most people don't make it in the NFL because they're not, they don't have enough balls. Mm. Like you, you got to be crazy. You've got to have Without a certain a level of, I don't give a shit about my body. Mm. And if you don't have that about you, you're, you're not going to make it. I've seen plenty of guys who are gifted, just gifted players 
and they just don't have what it takes and everybody to play in the NFL. You got to be tough, but there's a certain level of toughness that it separates guys. And you got to have a little bit of that crazy toughness about you to be able to play in this league. And then I think the other thing that really separates guys is like, everybody is a gifted athlete. If you make it to that point, you're a gifted athlete. It's your ability to react. Hmm. So like, I think what's more important than forties and, you know, vertical jumps and all that stuff is how quickly your body or how quickly your mind processes the information that, that you take in from your eyes and, you know, your sensory perception and, and what's going on on the football field. How quickly can you take that in and make a decision? Yeah. And that decision has got to be right. And you know what? There is just like there is an elite level 40 time. There's an elite level reaction time. That is a God given ability as well. And some people have it. Some people don't. And, you know, a lot of guys that don't have it, you know, they're just slow to react. They're slow to make a decision. They're slow to do those things. It doesn't have anything to do with your intelligence level. Mm. It has to do with your God given ability from your brain. When you get information, how quickly does your brain process it and send it to your extremities to react. Right. Yeah. And that and can be, yeah. that, that can be measured like just like a 40 time can be measured. And if you don't have that, I don't care how good an athlete you are or how straight line a guy you are, you know, from a, from a running standpoint or whatever, uh, or how much you can bench. If you don't have that ability, you can't play. That's it, it's just bottom line. You can't. And then your body's ability to recover. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's right. I mean, this is something that, you know, I wanted to, to chat with you about, but you've been very open about, especially towards the end of your career, the, the surgeries and the injuries as they start to pile up. And, you know, you've had surgeries on both knees. Was there something in particular that, that brought you back to the game each time? Or was there sort of times through that where you, you weren't sure if you were going to fight back and, and come back and play? Yeah, I mean, you always have questions. You know, when I first had my first ACL was in college at 19 years old and I'm laying in a hospital bed on what they call a CPM machine, which just keeps your leg moving 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and it pulls it straight and it's excruciatingly painful when it pulls it straight. This is 85. So, you know, it was much more Neanderthalic, if you will, (laughs) the surgeries were, were far, far more invasive than they are today. And then it would bend your knee up. And it would just like, you're just like, your back has got rashes on it because you're pushing yourself up and then you're sinking yourself back, you know, and you're trying to move with the machine. So just miserable. Right. And nobody's there. I'm just in Griffin Memorial Hospital by myself. My team is playing because I tore my ACL and I think there was still one game left. It was just absolutely miserable. And I, I literally at 19 years old was like, that's it. I'm never playing again. <laughs> then you start to, you know, rehab and get healthy and, and there's something about it that just keeps, you know, it's kind of the lifeblood that courses through your veins. It's just something about it that keeps bringing you back. And then it became, there's almost a badge of honor aspect to it. You know, I've always, like, I've always believed in sacrificing for teammates. And, you know, I just have always believed in everybody on my football team being more important than me. You know, those guys were important to me. And I've always like you see companies want to have like a uh, their company guidelines right Mm -hmm. there. They they say, here's our our mission. Like, here's our mission statement, you know, and and, you know, they all I I can always I always have this vision of everybody sitting around as a company. Right. And they're having a steak dinner and they've got a bottle of wine, you know, and they're going, we need to put our our mission statement together. And they craft it and they work on it and they were and they're really proud of it. And then they put it in their pamphlet and they hang it on the wall. And then nobody lives by it, right? Yeah. Nobody really ever reads it again. And I always kind of thought one of my favorite, one of my favorite books of the Bible is Philippians. Mm-hmm. And 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 Philippians is a just a really interesting book. Paul writing the church at Philippi, right? And he's actually writing them from prison. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now I don't I don't know about you guys, mm. but if I'm writing you from a prison cell, I'm not writing to encourage you to have that kind of humility and having that kind of attitude of, of servantship. I I'm writing you to break me out, right? Like <laughs> how right. are we going to, how are we going to get me out of prison guys? Right. <laughs> and so I always kind of thought it was important for me to have my own personal mission statement. Yeah. And that was kind of it is yeah. how am I going to treat people? How am I going to connect with people? And you know, as you transfer into the business world or you transfer out of football into the broadcasting world, it was always an important thing for me was how am I treating people? 
how am I connecting with people? From a yeah. business perspective, I always say this, you're either in the relationship business or you're going out of business. Mm -hmm. And it was always important for me from a broadcasting standpoint, whether it was my 16 years at ESPN or my last three years at Fox, whether it was my radio show here in Denver, whether it's the podcast, whatever the case may be, how am I connecting with people? How am I developing relationship with people? How am I serving those people that I'm in relationship with? How are we connecting? Because, I mean, if you think about it, like I walk around airports and I travel around this country, sure. man, and everybody is locked in right to right here, <laughs> a four inch iridescent screen. And we've never been more connected through te technology and less connected as people. Yeah. It's, and so like one of the things I do with my family is like when we go out, if you pick up your cell phone during dinner, you have to pay for your own meal. My, and my kids are all older now, but yeah. that's a, that like you pick it up, go ahead, go check on your, you know, uh, one of the things I love to say to my youngest daughter who is, you know, she's in that world. Obviously we are all in that sure. world, that Instagram, that Twitter world. Right. But she, she does it for a living. And one of the things I love to say when she sits down and we'll be together, you know, somewhere and she's looking at Instagram, I'm like, what are people you don't know doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> I love right? that. Like, what are they up to? What are well, what are, what are the people you don't know doing right now? Because it's like instead of connecting with me, we don't get to see each other that much anymore. Uh, what are the people you don't know doing? Because that's really mm. important, yeah, right? Yeah. But but I mean, I'm I'm guilty. We all fall yeah, victim to it. I mean, we're li we're living in this world where you know there's so many distractions around us, and and you know, look, you're you're coming from the broadcast world. You see it, right? Everybody's pumping out content every day. And I feel like we're getting a little right. meta because here we are putting a podcast together and pumping out content too. But really it's, you know, everybody's in that world of they're consuming content and they're also creating content at the same time. And, and it just gets right. so easy to get sucked into all of it. No, but there's, you know, there's, there's content that's silliness and that's fun and that you, if you set time away for, you know, that's, yeah. it's great. And, and hopefully we're going to create some content that's going to be helpful for somebody, right? Mm -hmm. That they're going yeah. to connect with and say, Hey man, this is really good advice, you yeah. know? So that's what you hope to to create. But again, there's still time to connect and you know, there's still time to have a conversation. There's still time to, to, to learn from one another as opposed to just, you know, burying your head in nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of talked about being a little crazy to be on the football field, having a little crazy in you. At what point in your career, was there a moment, you know, uh, obviously that first ACL surgery before you even made it professionally, but where you really started to think about life after the game. We, we actually had Jake Plummer on the show, and he talks about being at the Pro Bowl and seeing John Elway, a legend, being helped out of the room by his wife at the time. And he said that was really a shock for him, you know, to see that. Of course, he went on to play another six or seven years after that, but that was kind of the moment for him when he said, ah, oh, man, am I going to be doing this forever? I got to be thinking about my body and, and what's next. So what about for you? And we could even, you know, I'd love to even focus more on as you started to think about getting into media and that opportunity. Yeah. You know, I had, I had something in my sixth year in the league. No, actually it was my fifth year in the league called Guillain-Barre syndrome or Guillain-Barre oh, syndrome, mm -hmm. excuse me, Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS is, I always say it wrong, but so I, I got really sick. I was really playing poorly. Mm. This is going into the 93 season. I didn't feel right. Something was wrong. I felt like I was losing my, my strength to a degree. And I'd be blocking people. And all of a sudden, like, all of a sudden there was an interruption from the signal that went from my brain to my feet or to my hands. Wow. And all of a sudden somebody would be by me. And it was depressing because I'm a Pro Bowl player. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like I forgot how to play football. And so that was incredibly depressing. And, you know, and I'm working my butt off trying to figure it out. And it's just not, nothing's working. And one morning, probably October-ish, I wake up and, and my left foot is going numb. And like the bottom of my foot's numb, my toes are numb. And I just assumed that maybe my tape was too tight mm. from the night before, from the day before practice. And so... By, you know, by later on that day, it was my whole foot was numb. And then it was my right foot started going numb the next day. And by the time we're playing the New York Giants, by the time we get to Saturday night, both of my feet are completely numb. And now my hands are going numb. And I'm like, there's something dramatically wrong with me, right? Now, you would think that by Sunday morning, both my feet 
from my ankles down are completely numb. Like it was like, you ever see Billy? No, not, not Billy Madison. It's uh it's another Adam Sandler movie. Mr. Deeds, where yes. he had Blackfoot, yes. right? You could have jammed an ice pick through my foot and I wouldn't have felt it, oh, right? Man. Like my, my feet were that numb. Wow. And now my hands were completely numb. And so you would think that you wouldn't play, right? Well, of course I lined up to play, oh, right? I, I played. Come on. So I played about, yeah. I kid you not, I played about seven, eight plays. I think I fell down every play. I mean, it was just yeah. like, I Are had you nothing. kidding me? So, yeah. So I pulled myself out and I was like, Hey, there's something dramatic. There's something really wrong going on here. Right. And so anyhow, that night we fly back to DC and, and the buses, you know, the buses take everybody back to the facility and they have a car for me to take me down to the hospital in about a week's time in the hospital. I had no feeling in my legs from my like the top of my knees down and no feeling in my arms from my elbows down. And Eventually, it just kind of stopped right there, and then they sent me home. I was probably spent, I don't know, a week to 10 days in the hospital, and they sent me home, and it, it was to the point where, you know, they said, hey, you have this Guillain-Barre syndrome. You have GBS, and, you know, hope you heal. <laughs> so, That's wow. wow. So, right. So, like, hey, good luck. And so I went home, and, you know, literally, I would, I'd fall down the stairs. I, could, I couldn't feel my feet. If I went downstairs, I, I went back up and slept for three hours. I went from 295 down to about 235 in the wow. matter of a few months. That's a low playing it, weight for a lineman, right? Right, yeah. And so, you know, it, it got, you know, you, you're really contemplating, well, well I'm not even thinking again. about right. know, playing. And at you're that like, point. and at that point, you know, I mean, I didn't, I hadn't made any real money. I mean, you know, I mean, that was a different time, right. but I hadn't made any real money. And, you're looking at, you know, a beautiful house that you live in. And, and, a, and my wife was pregnant with our daughter and, and she was due, you know, in March. And here I am in November looking at my career being over and like, hey, we're going to have to sell this house and we're going to have to start over in something else because like I can't afford it if I'm not playing football. So, yeah, that was that was one of those times where you really look at your life and going like, you know, what's going to happen. But I, I will tell you, there's. It, there's always a lesson to be learned and there's always some cool things that can happen. And it depends upon the way, kind of the lens with which you look through life. One of the things and one of the only things I could do at that time, because yeah, I couldn't really even drive because my feet you know, weren't working and stuff. But every day I got up and I made lunches for the kids. I made my son and my daughter's lunch. They were like kindergarten, first grade, something like that. And so... I would make lunches and I thought that you like I was the world's greatest lunch maker. You know, I was like, <laughs> I, I think I invented aerosol cheese, one of the great cheeses of all time, right? I was gonna say uh, this, know, this the, is also when you could put peanut butter in a lunch before every kid in right. America was allergic to peanuts. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> right. So I was big in into making the kids lunches because that's essentially the only thing I could do, right? So I'm elaborate lunches every day. I'm taking a ton of pride in it. You know, and, and the crazy thing was is like I could literally like be cutting the sandwiches or something and knock the knife off the table and I could watch it fall all the way to the floor. And, and all I could say at the time was like, boy, I hope that doesn't stick in my foot because oh, the, the, the disease, you, you couldn't move. Yeah. It's an yeah. autoimmune situation. So one of the cool things that ended up happening is I'm making these lunches and these elaborate lunches and I'm, I'm really, it's cool. And I started writing inspirational notes on the napkins. Okay. And some of them were inspirational notes, encouraging the kids. Some of them were just like stupid things, you know, little poems that I would make up or whatever. And I, I would spend a lot of time on, on these. And that, that continued in the off seasons. Even when I came back and started playing for the Broncos, when the off season would hit, I would always make lunches. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm up in my, my daughter's apartment, you know, they're in the thirties now, yeah. one's in 26 and one's in her thirties and they still have the napkins from oh, wow. grade oh, school, beautiful. like in junior high school. Like, so Man, that's pretty like, cool. there's a connection there that, you know, you can change the lens with which you look through kind of a tragic event in your life and say, Hey man, there's yeah. still, there's still great things to be gained here. 
but you know, I just got to get off my butt and quit feeling sorry for myself and I got to do something. So, yeah, you know, that those are really cool things that both of my daughters still have those in their scrapbook. You know, I'm sure my son threw all his away because he doesn't <laughs> really care, but my, you know, both my daughters kept it. That's, anyway. a, that, yeah. that's a great story, Mark. And, and we appreciate you sharing that. that. That's, that's beautiful. So, um, so yeah. ultimately you recovered. Yeah. Yeah. And was that, that was completely on your own? Or did, yeah, it, you know, was, were there advancements just, from the doctors you worked with or? No, it was just over time. You know, now they do a lot of blood transfusions for it. And, yeah. you know, they treat you, you with like a steroidal kind of concoction. And but then they didn't. And and I just recovered over time. But, you know, I, I went back to training camp in 1994 for the Redskins. And I still had, you know, several toes that were still numb. Oh. I hadn't, you know, it had dissipated, it, you know, it creeped down. But I remember weighing in and I was two, I was 268. Mm. And so I was like, man, I can't weigh in at 268. I mean, they're just going to go, they're going to go ballistic. So I weighed in, I got a 10 pound weight and I, you know, <laughs> put it, I put it in my pants, lay in my, oh my shorts, <laughs> so that it was just in my jock really? strap. That you know, like a little ten pound plate, and weighed in, so it was two seventy eight. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I haven't gained all my weight back, but I'm on my way back." You know, <laughs> oh and I was like, God. "Oh gosh, yeah." So I mean, I went to training camp. I was two sixty eight, playing offensive guard. You know, yeah. just trying to get trying to get back. But you know, the interesting thing was is early in the season. You know, I I hadn't had I didn't have my strength back and. And it really took me 18 months to recover. Mm -hmm. But by like by late November, December, I started playing really well again. And I started, you know, feeling better again. And I started gaining my strength back and I gained, you know, my weight back. I was back legitimately in the 280s, you know, high 280s. And so at that point, I started playing really well which was fortunate because it was right before free agency. And then, you know, it gave me an opportunity to go into free agency in, in 95. And although I did, I hit free agency, I failed the physical in Chicago. I failed the physical in Atlanta. I failed the physical in, in Indianapolis, but Mike Shanahan and I owe him a debt of gratitude. He basically just said, Hey, this guy's going to pass regardless of what shows up on his physical. So, so that's how I ended up with the Broncos. Got I it. just failed physicals all over the place. Yeah. So I want to make sure we, we really get into now, you know, what you've been up to post-career. You've been at uh, this, you've been at media for a while now, but thinking back to those early days when you joined ESPN, did you feel a pretty steep learning curve getting into it? Or did you find that it came to you pretty naturally? You know, when I was first as a rookie, I joined this program to speak at junior high schools when I was playing in the off season. And, you know, it was a, it was a, a really cool program put on by the Mobile Oil Corporation and we'd go out to all these junior high schools. I think we got to, to speak at 10 of them. Right. And the funny thing was, you know, it was a, it, it was an event that mobile put on. It was a charitable kind of thing, you know, and it was really cool to be a part of, but you know, honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I didn't do it for the charity part mm. of it. I did it because they were paying me 400 bucks an event. And <laughs> that ain't bad. I, I, I had a, a wife and two kids and I needed the money. I mean, I'm, I mean, I started in the NFL and I made $45,000 Wow! and we bought a house and, you know, and, and so I needed that money to get us through to training camp to where we're getting at that point. I think training camp checks were $700 a week and I needed to get, I needed that $400 per speaking engagement to get us through the summer months so that I could start making money again as a football player. And, you know, the, the ancillary benefit to doing it was, I developed a little bit of flair for it and, and, you know, and I, I mean, I get to speak all over the country and I really enjoy it and I enjoyed getting up and kind of together a presentation and, and talking to the kids. And so it was a, it was a cool thing to be a part of, but that's kind of how I got my start with the public speaking aspect yeah. of it. And so when ESPN slapped me in front of a camera, there's a learning curve in that, you really have to, I think at first, most analysts want to write everything down, like have a kind of a script. Like I want to say this and I want to say this and I want to say this. And that's pretty much the worst thing you can do right. Okay. because at, at some point you're going to screw something up and then you're going to be stumbling around trying to figure out where you were yeah. on your script. And so I, I did some of that at first, but ultimately one of the biggest skills you can develop is your ability to listen. Yeah. Listen absolutely. to the, the, the people you're doing a show with, right. And be able to react. And then 
if you do the work, mm-hmm. which is pretty much typical of anything, if you do the work and you've studied the film and you have an opinion on pretty much every team, regardless of where the conversation goes, you're going to have something to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I learned pretty quickly that do the work and, and when somebody asks you a question, answer it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and for me, it became pretty easy. The, the studio stuff was, was easy. The transition to games is exponentially more difficult. Okay. How so? Because it, like, well, if you, if you think about doing a studio show, right? So they say, Hey, you have a production meeting. They say, Hey, we want to talk about this, this, and this. Well, you can go research that. You can go look at film. You can go build yourself a, a highlight package, right? You could do all those things. And then when they ask you, there's, it's not spontaneous. It's, you know, it's something that you've prepared to do. Right. And even though you don't script exactly what you say and you know what your film is, you know what you've seen, you know what you're going to talk about in a game. You never know how a game's going to go. Yeah. And I always tell people like, well, what's, what's it like calling a game? Well, it's like, I, I always tell people, well, I think it's like playing the accordion, although I've never played the accordion. (laughs) And how so? Like, how is it like playing an accordion? You're squeezing in to a myopic point of something that happened or something that you want to talk about. And then you're expanding out globally to talk about the game in general, what you're thinking of as a coach, what a player might be going through here. And it's this constant in and out motion of calling a game. And there's very limited time. So you've got to be in and out before the plays and, and there's a rhythm to it. And you never know. Everything you studied on film, like, that's why they get to game plan. Yeah. They might do completely different things that you watched on film. And everything you thought that was going to happen usually never happens. And so there's this spontaneity to it. There's this energy to it. It's a lot like playing without getting the crap beat out of you. Yeah. I've really, I've enjoyed the challenge. I mean, I'll put every week, I put 40, 50 hours into just prepping the game. Yep. And again, it, you just don't know. You just have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and it's a live broadcast. So, you know, once it comes out of your mouth, man, it's on <laughs> It's on the air. And it could be one of the dumbest things you've ever said. People You're are like, going to well, tweet about it and the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, now, yeah, Ab- nowadays. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> no so it's, uh, there's, it's so yeah, funny. There's it, some energy to it. Yeah, it's so funny to hear you tell that story because it's actually bringing me back. I got my start in football not playing but actually press box announcing. And so I remember uh-huh. when I was, I was a sophomore in high school and this, this teacher, I think, heard me give a presentation and he heard my voice and he was like, you know what, man, the guy who used to do our, our high school press box announcing, he just graduated. I, I think you got a good voice for it. You want to come be the football press box announcer? And I said, yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. I go, only one problem. I don't know how to play football. <laughs> it's like, so I just like the energy of it, that first game, man, like I was a mess. And then I think to your point, you think you can script it all out. You just got to go with the flow of it, and you just sort of surrender to the flow of it. Yeah. And I, I ended up doing it for two years, but that first game, man, I, you, you were like giving me yeah. flashbacks to it, like it was crazy. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, a ton of, of attention has been paid to Tony Romo's deal that he just signed. I think it was seventeen million dollars a year, maybe ten year deal, or at least that's what, what's reported. Right. I guess a question I have for you around that is: Does it get harder as you get further away from the game? No, I mean, if if you're prepared, so like. I think as the game changes, you know, it, it pretty much stays true to what the game is. Like there hasn't been a new route combination developed in the NFL in the passing game in 20 years, Mm. you know, that everybody runs the same stuff. They just call it different things. So it's not like it's changed dramatically that way. I think the volume of plays probably has expanded, but now, I spend a lot of time prepping. I spend a lot of time working. I spend a lot of time, you know, Mike Shannon, it's really been interesting, like wh- how our relationship has grown over the years from, you know, coach player to coach media guy to friends. And so Mike is so involved in the game on a day-to-day basis as a, you know, consultant with the Niners and his son, Kyle Shanahan. And so I'm over at Mike's house. We're watching film. We're looking at the latest trends. And Mike is not, he's from a different planet because one, like the guy doesn't watch anything but football, right? He doesn't, that's all he does is watch football. So we will literally sit in his office and we'll watch one route combination. Like I'll I'll never forget. We watched this thing called branch 
Okay. Branch is the front side. It's the tight end running what they call a branch, which is a stick route is a six yard out. Mm -hmm. A branch is about an eight yard, nine yard out, Mm -hmm. right? It just is an out route by the tight end on that side in a two by two formation. Mm -hmm. So in double and the receiver on that side. So that would be the Z receiver. The strong side receiver runs a go. And that's branch. Like if you see it three times, you, you, okay, that's branch. Mm. We watched branch for an hour of cutups. <laughs> oh we sat there and watched that same tight end on the out Z receiver on the go Yeah, for an hour, an hour. I mean, what are you even looking for and at that point? Nothing. I'm just sitting there and he's like, yep, <laughs> there it is again. Like for an, and, and like, I mean, so I'm, t- I was actually literally, I was talking to Jimmy Garoppolo and when Jimmy Garoppolo tore his knee for San Francisco, mm. Mike came in. And so Mike came in and, and studied film with Jimmy. And Jimmy goes, I swear to God, he goes, Mike Shanahan is like, he's like a camel. He's like, we watched, we watched film. He's drinking coffee. He doesn't eat. He drinks coffee and he, and he watches film. He's like, we're four hours into it. And I finally said, coach, like, I got to go to the bathroom. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 go, go, go. So Jimmy, you know, crutches off, uses the restroom, comes back, and he goes, and they watch for another three hours. It was like seven straight hours. He goes, Mike never took a bathroom break. He drank coffee the whole time. He drank coffee the whole time. He's like, he's not, he's not human. I mean, well, well, wait a second to, to be fair, fair. I think you have a similar story where you, you've previously said that if you had to pee during a game, you'd just pee your pants. You said, my knees hurt. My shoulders hurt. My back hurts. I'm not going to hold this and be miserable too. Maybe Garoppolo should just, you know, you should do that in the film room. Right. Just go, just go and say, (laughs) Hey man, I'm so dialed into your, to your branch concept that I'm just going to piss my pants and we're just going to move on. So yeah. So I mean, Kyle tells it. Kyle Shanahan tells it to me all the time. He goes, "My dad loves football way more than I do." Yeah. So you know, I, but he's been a great mentor to me. He's a great friend to me, and I honestly have learned more about football in the last eighteen months sitting by his side, watching stuff and going through stuff than I had learned in the last eighteen years. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's really when you start looking at all the intricacies of formations and you know the things you do as an offense these are things that you know for me i didn't play quarterback so some things sometimes you just don't think about yeah until somebody points it out to you and you're like oh shoot that's why we did that yeah like, oh, yep. that makes sense you know yeah and, so, and you it, know just learning that part of it it's just it's a cool thing you know the the nuance of the game yeah is awesome and and so now you know for me i i I consulted with the saints last year. I've had several teams have come after me this year to come consult in the running game and protection game. And so, you know, I, I still have that, that feeling of, of doing some coaching and, and, you know, getting to be involved with organizations and, and, you know, and, and, and trying to teach some of the nuance that I learned all those years being coached well and, and, you know, playing on really good teams. Yeah, no, that that's great. And and now as you're, you know, now that you've become this TV and radio personality, I'm sure, you know, shifting gears a little bit that you get asked to put your name on or sponsor or sort of be a part of, I'm, I'm sure, quite a few businesses and opportunities. So mm-hmm. now thinking about sort of outside of the broadcast world and some of your business ventures, how do you decide what's right for you? How do you decide this is something that, you know, you want to get behind and really put your brand behind? I think there's a couple of things like I just don't lend my name and take a royalty check. Hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on everything that I'm involved in, I'm involved in. So whether it's my stinking good green chili company, which, you know, I'm in that every day. That's something that we created together. It's been a Gosh, we in May we start thirteen years. This yeah, thirteen year labor. Yeah, let me, let me take a step love. back because I, I think I want to. I want right. to hear the story about it a little bit. I, I know that the, some sort of landscaping was involved and your lawn was involved. So give us the story behind how you got involved in stinking good chili and and you know what what passion you had for it. Right. Well, my you know my big thing is my like I'm not a collector of things. I'm not a things guy. You know, I'm not a stuff dude. Mm. I'm a landscape dude. 
I would much rather spend five hours in my yard working than five hours on a golf course. Wow. So I like to be, I like to start a project and see it to its finish out in the yard. My wife would probably disagree when it comes to inside the house because I don't care, but in my <laughs> the, yard, the yard is you. The yard is 100% me. And so I spend, you know, just a, a, a crazy amount of time out there. And, yep. You know, I always joke around one of my proudest moments is I was building this retaining wall out of natural stone and some new people moved in across the street and the guy came over and asked me for a card. He goes, I want you to give me an estimate on, you know, on my front yard. <laughs> and I, and I said, Hey, listen, man, that you just made me so happy. I go, I actually, I don't, I don't work here. I own this house. Like this is just my project. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, Oh gosh, I'm sorry. Go, no, no, don't be sorry. It was a gigantic compliment. I'm, right? I'm so, good, buddy. I'm good. Right. But when, my last year with the Broncos, there was a landscaper that took care of a lot of the people's yards that played for the Broncos. Our neighborhood had a lot of guys that lived in it. And I hurt my knee on the first day of camp. And I ended up a couple of days later having a knee surgery. And so I was on crutches for 10 days. So this guy who, who cut a bunch of other people's, you know, lawns in the neighborhood ended up introducing himself to my wife and saying, Hey man, I'm just going to take care. I know Mark does his own stuff. I'll take care of it until he gets off crutches. You know, I, okay. I follow the news type of thing. And so when I was done with training camp, I went and found him to thank him, you know, and like, what, what do we owe you type of thing? And he's like, Hey, no problem, man. But he goes, I make the best green chili in the world. I'd like to bring some over to you so you could sample it. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm a 300 pound offensive lineman. You know, I was like, sure. Bring it. I didn't even know what green chili was. I, I never had it. I didn't know. But I was like, you're going to feed me? Yeah, come on over. My son and I just devour the whole thing. Nobody else even in the family even got to try it. And so every couple of months, he'd bring it to me. And our running joke for nine years was uh, you got to bottle this stuff and sell it. Yeah. And so he sold his landscaping company. And he went as far as he could trying to get his product on the shelves and, you know, packaging and everything else. And so one day there's a knock on my door and we had become friends. Mm -hmm. And and he said, hey, listen, I took your advice. You know, I want to try to make this company go. You know, I just need two things. And I said, well, what do you need? He goes, I need a name Mm. and I need some money. And I was like, well, I got, you know, I got both. So let's do it. Wow. And, and so we started it 13 years ago and it's been this labor of love and it's, you know, I always joke around, had I known then what I know now, I'd have chose something else to put my money in, <laughs> but, but it's, it's been a really, it's been a really cool project, you know? Yeah. And so we, I've been involved the whole time and he runs the day to day, but you know, we're, we're connected and, through, and through that's been and fun. Downs. Yeah. Through the ups and downs. I mean, it's been 13 years. Do you guys ever think about selling it and, you know, see if one, you know, one of these big every brands, day. is that right? Every, every day I think about selling it. You know, I, I'll tell you a funny story. We get our first product on the shelf. It was a medium pork green chili. Okay. We, we took the, the chili to King Supers, which is a Kroger owned grocery store. Mm-hmm. We fed them lunch, you know, we poured it over hot dogs and burgers and did a bunch of stuff and they loved it. They put in their first purchase order. So we're cruising, right? Like we're, we're a company now, right? So we're pretty excited. So we present to them a mild and a hot pork green chili Mm -hmm. said, we'll take them both. So we get two more purchase orders. Right. And so we are literally celebrating our success at Starbucks having coffees, having lattes, talking about being green chili mavens. We are $5,000 in the black. Okay. Like we like we're cruising, right? Yeah. And it's going to be the greatest thing ever, right? We're going to I mean, we're going to be the Jimmy Deans of green chili, right? <laughs> and this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And so literally while we're sitting there patting ourselves on the back, he gets an email, you know, it goes off on his phone and says, you know, you get the notice. And so I go, oh, no, check it, check it, right? So I'm sipping my latte, and it's a note from King Supers, the Kroger division from Cincinnati. Say, hey, man, you know, congratulations on your success. Congratulations on having three new SKUs or SKUs in Mm -hmm. in the grocery store, blah, 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 blah. Uh, You know, and, and we're really excited to do business with you. And then it went on to say, as you know, at part of doing business with King Supers or with Kroger is, uh, slotting fees. We waived your first slotting fee on your first SKU 
but we are not going to waive the slotting key fees on your medium pork or your hot pork and your mild pork. So you owe us 19,000 whatever dollars. Well, yeah, but slotting fee is essentially rent for shelf space, mm-hmm. right? It's it's extortion is what it is. So so now we literally go from 5,000 in the black to over $12,000 in the hole. Yeah. And so we're like, well, we don't have $12,000 and my partner's freaking out. He's like, I can't believe this slotting fees. And I'm like a little minor bird, right? I'm like, I can't believe it. Slotting fees is ridiculous, you know? <laughs> and he's like saying whatever. And I'm just mimicking it. This is, this is asinine. I can't believe it, right? And, and finally, I'm like, hey, what's the slotting fee? And so he explained to me what the slotting fee was. And I'm like, just send me the email. And he's like, I'm not sending you the email. I'm not going to have you write another check. I go, I'm not going to write another check. Just send me the email. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, why? And I go, just trust me. Send me the email. So he sends it to me and I essentially copy and paste it and I write back to Kroger and I said, Hey, listen, had no idea about slotting fees. Right. You know, first off I said, Hey, it's a pleasure being in business with you guys. We're so excited sure. about success and blah, blah, blah. I go, I've got to be honest with you. I had no idea what a slotting fee was. Never heard of it before, but I'm a man of integrity. And if I owe you, you know, 19,000, whatever, I'm going to find a way to pay you 19,000. I go, however, you do realize that you asked me to show up to six grand reopenings mm. of, of your Kroger grocery stores, right? And you do also realize that anytime you're involved with a celebrity figure, there is an appearance fee that goes with that. Yep. And I said, my appearance fee is $20,000 a pop. <laughs> so I go, at the end of the day, I go, at the end of the day, I think it was five appearances. I go, so it was $80,000. So I go, at the end of the day, you owe me and it was like $81,462.14. You can make your check payable. Oh and I God. emailed the guy. I emailed it to him. And I literally got a return email within about 30 seconds. All it said was, touche, we'll call it even. I was like, well, I thought you'd see it my way. Right? That was wild. And, yeah. And so that was kind of, this kind of been the indoctrination into the food business, which is sometimes a a shady business. But like I said, I'm involved in it. Mm. I'm involved in the day to day. And, you know, we, we also started a company that that's really, I'm really excited about. We Mm -hmm. started a referral network. Yeah. Let's talk Um, about that, Mark. Because I I know that's something that's new that you kicked off. And and as I was, as I was looking at it, it would seem like a, a really interesting opportunity. So the tagline is connecting consumers with trusted and vetted companies. Tell us about it. Tell us about Mark's All Pros and sort of what the the idea that you 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 know had for right. it and what was the problem in the market that you really wanted to solve. Right. So I think one of the things about referral networks, you know, and and for those who are wondering what a referral network is, it's like uh, home advisors, right? And you know, our tagline connecting smart consumers with great companies. Yeah. So one of the things about the referral business in general is I think it's a great concept, and for four years. I have a local radio show in Denver that's really popular. And for four years, I was approached about creating a, a referral network. And I was just like, I don't know. You know, I don't really know that much about the business, blah, blah, blah. So anyhow, I connected with a guy who had built them before that really understood the business. And I said, the problem with the business is that if we do it, it it's got to be done with integrity, with character, and it's got to be done differently than every other referral network out there. So what we did was we went about trying to kind of build a better mousetrap. And what you'll find about most referral networks is that they have become, I think they started off with the right intentions, but it's become kind of this pay for play association. Right. Yeah. And so if you pay enough, regardless of of what you've done or regardless of who you are, you get on our network. Mm. So I was like, I just don't think that's right. I don't want that to be our legacy. Kind of defeats the whole purpose. Right. And so, you know, you'll see a local network on that has 25 companies on in one category. Wow. And, And so what we've created is, one, a better business practices philosophy. So it's not just you're rating with a better business bureau, but it's a better business practices. So you have to pass criminal background checks. Mm-hmm. Your company has to pass criminal background checks. You have to pass credit background checks. To get on our network is so much more stringent than to get on any of the other networks. So you have to pass, you have to be willing to shell out the money 
verification of insurance. We become a holder in your company on the insurance wow, okay. to make sure that you hold that make so so it is it is far it's it's a far more thorough vetting process yeah. to yeah. be a part of ours. Then we limit the number of we limit the number so a lot of these referrals is you not only pay to be on the network, but you pay for the referrals. Yep. Well, we only give you three. Mm. So we have three referrals in, in any category and then three backups. And what, what are some you, of the categories just so our listeners understand? Is it, you know, roofing and, you know, yeah, home decor? Anything, yeah. Right. Anything construction wise. Okay. But we've we've opened it up because of the way the way we've done it. We've opened it up to professionals. So. Mm. We're talking with doctors and we're talking with dentists and we're talking with with people that have great reputations that can pass all the background checks that, you know, that we're trying to bring everybody into our network so that we're a one stop shop for whatever you need that and you can feel like, hey, I can send my mom who lives in a different state to this referral network and she is not going to be taken advantage of. She like that's that was really kind of the way we did it and and it honestly believe it or not just doesn't exist in the business. Yeah. Like one it's much much more difficult to to get the vetting process is much more difficult so you, you have to be legit that way. The other thing is we limit the categories. So we're not going to take 40 roofers, you know, yeah. it just yeah. it, it defeats we get, the purpose, yeah. Right. And so and, and because I have more of a national name, I don't have to like there's three or four referral networks in, in Denver, Colorado that we'll compete with. But they they only have access to Denver. Yeah. I have access to right to the nation because of, of what I do for a living. Yeah. So I can limit the number of people I put on my network and, and know that, hey, man, here is our three that referrals get to. There's a six total. And that's all you get on. And how are you able to screen yeah. from a geographical standpoint, right? Do you have people in every single market or are you limiting to market rollout at first? How are you approaching that? Yeah. So right now we have a few companies that have just reached out to us that just want to be a part of it in different states. But yeah, we do it per zip code and we do it per 50 mile radius. So, you know, where the company does the all their business essentially in the construction business and all that. So it's like it's a really cool system and it's been great. And I have to, you know, give credit to the guy who built the software. He he's incredible yeah. and, and he's my business partner. And and so, you know, again, from an integrity standpoint, that's really what we're trying to do. And it's it's been incredibly well received, which tells me that we're on the right track because most people feel like, hey, I don't know why I'm paying a referral network, but I feel like I have to. Right. As opposed right. to, hey, I want to because there's a great synergy yeah. and a great relationship here. And how do you how do you measure success in a business like that? Is it just the number of, of referrals that you produce? Is it repeat business? Do you sort of track the folks that are on your platform? You know, if they if, if these customers that they get continue to work with them, I mean, what what's the success metric right. that you think well, about? Well, I, I think I think obviously it's it's like it's just like it is for me in radio. You know, I've been doing a radio show for four years, and I have the same clients right. for the last four years that advertise. You know, my same live clients. I haven't lost any. Yeah, like they they don't leave. So one, if you can have people stay with you, you know you're providing a service for them that's beneficial to them. The other part is is we're going to build a network, or we're trying to build a network that it's based on integrity and character, and so. It, it becomes just being a part of the network becomes a selling point for you as a company. Hey, there's only three dentists. There's only three orthopedic surgeons. There's only three roofing companies. There's only three, like if we get this affiliation, right, there, there's value yeah. in that affiliation because of the limited nature of that affiliation. So that's something else that we're trying, you know, we're trying to do. Then the other thing is, you know, we want to be connected with the companies that we do business with. So I'm, I'm excited about it. And, you know, and it's it's just something cool that, again, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I just try to surround myself with like minded people that are experts. And, you know, what I bring is name value and and relational value and and then, you know, and then accountability. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. going to hold you accountable to doing what we say we're going to do. Part of our responsibility as a as a referral network is to make sure that that we are connecting you know smart and good consumers 
with great businesses. And, you know, I don't want to, Hey, I don't want to connect crappy consumers with great businesses yeah. because that, that sucks the life force out of your business. So, you know, it, it, it goes both ways for us and, and we've got, you know, the, the built-in software to, to manage that. You know, what I, what I really love hearing from you is that, you know, we see this as early stage investors, that the culture of the company stems from the founders. It, it flows from the culture that you instill. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you see this on the football field as well, right? That the captains, the leaders, they set the tone for everybody else. And I think you bringing that to the company today, obviously, it's, it's still early days. You're still sort of, you know, getting your, right. your legs under you here. But the culture you're instilling even now is what's going to make this company successful in the future. And it's what every employee that comes into it from here on out they're going to buy into this culture. Otherwise, they're not going to be there very long. And so it's it's, right. it's great to hear you. Great to hear you say that. Hey, I'll give you my I'll give you my one thing. This oh, is yeah, my landscaping please. to culture. Okay. So here's what I know about culture. After you know my years in the NFL and and years in broadcasting, and then you know starting a few businesses. Culture is very much like landscaping and very much like irrigation in landscaping. Water follows the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. It always does. So if you look in your lawn in the summertime and you see one spot, right, that is yellow, it's not receiving water, right? And so your lawn can be lush and green, but you could have one spot in there that is uh, water resistant. It's either not getting it or it's super hard. It follows the path of least resistance. Culture is the exact same way. Yeah. Culture will follow in a company or in a football team the path of least resistance. So whatever is easy, that's what culture follows. Right. right. And so you have to work on establishing that culture every single day. It's not enough just to talk about it once and then think everybody has has it. You got to talk about it every day and then you got to live it as an example. And as a company and business owner, you got to live it on a day to day basis so that it permeates your organization. It becomes part of who and what you are. And if you don't, there is always going to be those spots that, that aren't irrigated, you know, that, (laughs) that, that, that fall apart. And so I know that to be factual, just based on watching teams that I've played on and, and, you know, why, and, and, and having teams that win world championships and being on those teams, understand the importance of that culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's phenomenal advice uh, for entrepreneurs that we know will be listening to the show. But we also know that some of the listeners of the show are, you know, current athletes, whether they're in college, mm-hmm. some of them are, are, you know, pro athletes. So maybe let's close on any words of encouragement or advice that you'd have for current players as they're starting to think about making that successful transition like you did into life beyond the game. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, you know, life beyond the game is wonderful. It, it's great. Here's what you have to do and make sure you make this transition, whether you're a business owner, whether you're an athlete, whatever the case may be, you cannot get your identity from what you do for a living because you will be pink slipped. You will be cut. You will be outsourced. You will be fired. That's reality. And if you draw your identity from and you get yourself worth from what you do for a living, well, when that's taken away from you and it will be, you will struggle. You will fall into depression. You will have issues. My identity, I never identified myself as a football player. It's what I did for a living. There were so many other things that make me me. You know, follower of Christ, husband, father, like those things are so much more important and where I get my identity. So the football thing, when it was done, I was like, great. What's my next adventure? Yeah. Where does where's life going to take me from here? And I always looked at it that way. And so the biggest deal is you are not what you do for a living. <laughs> you are not. You, you play football and you earn a living doing it or you play a sport and you earn a living doing it. But that is not who you are. And if you don't come to grips with that, you know, whether you're a CEO or whether you're a podcaster or whether you're a business owner or whatever it is, if you don't come to grips with that, I guarantee you when it is taken away from you and it will be you'll struggle. And so my big thing, when I was done, I was excited to be done. I was like, that's it. I'm done. Great. What's next. And I I will tell you the other thing I can look back on, you know, I never was late for a meeting. I never missed a workout. I was always prepared, busted my ass in everything I did. And 
when I was done, there has never been one time I look back on my NFL career and said, boy, if I only I would have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have liked to not get hurt so much. But there is not one thing that I could look at and say, boy, I regret not doing that. Or I, I wish I would have had that over. Like there is not one time I have ever closed my eyes and had a regret about what I didn't do. And when you have it that way, well, you can walk away from it and go, okay, what's next? This is, this has been great. You know, yeah. what do I do next? Yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty interesting and appreciate you sharing that with us because it's actually a common sentiment that we've, we've had from a lot of our guests now. And I think it's also fair to say that it's probably simply said, but hardly done. And right. so, uh, the thing I take away from this conversation, and you know, thank you so much for joining us, mm-hmm. has just been how you really you, you live right. the way you want to be. You don't just talk about it. And so, thanks again for joining us on the game plan, Mark. We really appreciate yeah. it. We enjoyed the time. We hope you did as well. This was a lot of fun, Mark. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, it's uh, like success is is uh, it isn't easy, but it is simple. Yeah. Right. That's great. Yeah. It ain't easy, but it is simple. <laughs> so uh, awesome. you know what? Keep grinding. All right. We'll leave it Pleasure there. Pleasure to be with you guys. Thank All you right. so much. All right. Mark. Thanks, Mark. Take, Take care. care. All right. Bye. So at the end of every episode, Jay and I do what we call our weekly partner meeting. It's a chance for us to talk about the business ventures you just heard about, and to dig a bit deeper into the challenges they might face. <laughs> Jay, I don't think there was as much of a venture angle on this one, but there was a lot of really insightful things that Mark said. What was one of your key takeaways? I mean, I, I had a blast in that conversation, and obviously Mark is a phenomenal storyteller, and, and you can see how even so, sort of through multiple you know phases of his life, he's collected some some incredible experiences and stories. Yeah, Tim, I think you're spot on. Not every company that we see is going to be a venture-backable or venture-scale business, and that's certainly not the route and angle that Mark is going into. You know, I think one of the biggest learnings that I think he had and shared about getting involved in a, you know, chili company and a CPG brand without necessarily having any background or understanding of it, just realizing that, hey, this is really good product and maybe we should get it on some shelves, is just jumping feet first into it and then sort of having, you know, the trial by fire and learning how things go. And it certainly seems like, you know, he called it a labor of love. It certainly seems like that's what that business has become today. But, you know, you certainly heard some of the challenges they faced getting on the shelves, getting involved in in sort of, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> getting distribution. No, that, that, yeah, that was one of my favorite stories he was telling us about was when they were at the Starbucks together after the King Supers meeting and they had the email from Kroger. But it ties back to what he was saying during his play, playing days, how he was always just worried about supporting everyone around him. And so he was like the yes man, supportive, like, yes, what you know, whatever it is you're feeling right now, I'm feeling it too. I'm right there with you. And then, of course, he made light of it today where he was like, wait, what? What were we just talking? <laughs> yeah, Sorry, no, what are we it talking seems, It seems about? like he's he's making sort of the, the best of the situation that he got into. And I think he's addressed it with humility and sort of self-introspection, which is like, had he known then what he knows today, he probably would have, you know, maybe handled the situation differently or gotten involved in a different business. What I will say, though, and I really do like is just how thoughtful and introspective he is about the lessons that he's learning from his experiences, right? And he said it on top, whether it was his playing days, whether it was injury, whether it was, you know, obviously dealing with some of his medical challenges, the lessons that he took from it still inform everything he's doing today. And he's, ha- I mean, he's a renaissance man. He's, he's a broadcaster. He's an entrepreneur. He's got a podcast now. He's taking those lessons and really creating a lot of value, not just for himself and his family, but, but the people in his orbit and the people around him. And so, you know, in that company, now that he's gone from a CPG brand to a completely different company, right? A services business, he's built this technology platform for referrals, and he's building his own referral network where he's screening and, you know, having quality companies be a, a part of his referral network. The lessons he is taking about the challenges he had building that first business are informing that second business. And I mean this with all sincerity, when we meet second-time founders, that is something that you just can't replicate, right? They can have other advantages. You know, being a first-time founder, they might come from an industry and know that really well. But those those battle scars that you get from having built a business and having made those mistakes with somebody else's money, when you come and you're you're building your second company, 
that's just something you can't replicate. And so, you know, in, in his own way, Mark Schlereth is now a second time founder of a new business in a new category, but he's got those battle scars from his first business that hopefully are going to inform him on maybe some of the, the things that he would do differently now. Yeah. And the businesses are completely different between the Chili Company and Mark's All Pros, but you could tell the confidence he had as it related to Mark's All Pros. And I think to your point, it's a combination of the fact that this is his second time out there doing something. But it's also, from his perspective, a more powerful idea that he can get behind. It, yes, is it is it using his name? Yes. Is it, has he helped fund it? I'm sure he has. We didn't actually ask that question. But this is different because it's built on integrity, which is clearly what he stands for. You know, that's what he lives by. And so for me, I think the biggest takeaway was actually very similar to some of the other conversations we've had now that we've done quite a few of these is his identity. And specifically when he said, don't let football be your identity or don't let your sport be your identity. That's the most impactful piece of advice he can give to players out there today as they're thinking about life post post sport or post football. So it's not a new thing for us now at this point, because we've heard it, but Clearly, if the people we're talking to are the ones that have successfully made the transition, are all kind of preaching the same thing about have a true sense of self, have an identity outside of who you are as an athlete, that's something that resonates and, and lives true again and again. I think those are the individuals that are able to make the transition a lot more smoothly. And, and you know, our, our guest Ellis Wims mentioned a couple of weeks ago where he said that there are guys 10, 20 years after they play that are still watching highlights and sort of can't let go of the glory days and individuals like Mark who gravitate towards a, a different sense of identity mm -hmm. find that transition to be a lot easier. So I think you're spot on about also, that. Also to be clear, there's a difference between what Ellis was talking about in terms of watching highlights and watching eight hours straight of branch routes with Mike Shanahan. Good Lord. That, that is, that is a marathon. I mean, it, it, it seems like it'd be fun for about an hour and then you, you get, you know, a couple more into it. And I feel like Jimmy Garoppolo, I just got to, you know, find an excuse to get out of there. What, you know what I will say to him coming back to the business side of it. And I'm thinking about how it all uh, ties together from his time on the field to what he's doing now. It really comes down to building culture and you know, we're we're in the space with with tech and entrepreneurship, and right now the winds are changing a little bit. Where you're starting to hear about bad behavior from executives at the top and the culture they create, and how people don't really talk about it, but but that toxicity builds, right? And and you know, when you mentioned integrity, that really stuck out to me as Mark setting the vision and setting the culture. And I say this all the time to to the entrepreneurs that I work with. There are three things that a CEO has to do. And really, I think you can boil it down to say there are, there are three jobs, period, that a CEO has. It is setting the vision, it is hiring the right people, and it's making sure there's enough money to keep doing one and two. And everything else, all the other stuff you're doing, all the sales, all that stuff, it feeds into those three goals. And so when I hear you know Mark coming here and saying, I'm the guy setting the vision and setting the culture from the top, and every employee that I bring in has to be bought into my system. I mean, it's very similar to what you hear him talking about being on the field, right? So there's a lot of transferable skills here. And I know that we always come back to say, like, how you were on the field reflects how you are off the field, but you're the same person. And so whatever you're going to be when you're a player and those lessons that you're going to take, clearly culture was really important to him when he was a player. Taking care of the guys that were around him was really important when he was a player. He's now doing that when he's setting the culture at the top of this company. And I think that's a lesson that, you know, any of us can take away, even if we're not NFL pros. Well, Jay, I think that's a great way to wrap up. Appreciate you joining me on this week's partner meeting. We'll see you next time on The Game Plan. Thanks, Tim. And that's it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. As always, thanks so much for listening. We really enjoyed having Mark Slareth on the pod, and a special thanks to our friend David Simmons for the introduction. We also want to thank the Anchor Studio at Spotify for hosting us. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'll see you next week on The Game Plan. <laughs> <laughs>